Welcome to the sixth episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics come together to talk about our historical moment in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas. We take a perverted view on the situation and approach it through particular keywords. This time, our keyword is care. So, Alan, as tradition would have it, would you like to introduce our guest? Certainly I would. Uh, we're very pleased to have Andreas Chassidaki as our guest. Andreas is a professor of marketing at Royal Holloway. He's also editor of Marketing Theory uh, and has quite a long-standing presence in looking at issues of ethics in marketing. Um, he's also a member of the Care Collective, um, as is Lynn Siegel, who was our previous guest. Hello, Andreas, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, hello, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, before we begin, would it be a good idea to say who the Care Collective is and, and what that project is about? Yes, okay, so uh, the Care Collective um, started uh, about three years ago, and it originally started as a reading group, actually, uh, where a few of us started reading key textbooks around care, basically, and the intersection of care with politics. And um, um, relatively soon after, we began um, developing our own ideas. And that's where the Care Collective began to emerge, if you like. So it started as a reading group, but um, very quickly turned into a collective that aimed to make a political intervention, if you like. And with that in mind, uh, we started uh, writing our Care Manifesto, which is to be published with Verso uh, in a few months' time. And we've been working on various other things uh, as well. So, Andres, how is the self-quarantining and social isolating going for you so far? What's your thoughts on the situation? Well, that's a very broad question. Uh, I find it challenging on a per at a personal level, uh, not least because I'm not known as a, a domestic uh, person. I love being out. Uh, if anything, I spend used to spend more time being out than at home. So I haven't developed the skills needed for this, uh, but I'm quickly learning, trying to learn. I do find it uh, very interesting in terms of how a genuine sense of uh, sociality and neediness to be in the world uh, has to be reconfigured and uh, redefined to, to meet the challenge of uh, physical distancing. But um, I do think it's very interesting to observe how new norms and new ways of uh, connecting with each other are sprouting everywhere, basically, from uh, Zoom-mediated meetings to uh, you know, the bottom-up um, solidarity groups that are aiming to care for those in need uh, in a more direct way. So you know, it's all, you know, if you like, on one level overwhelming, at the second level, um, interesting to observe uh, in terms of, not least in terms of how our natural inclination to care for each other has to be uh, reconfigured under these circumstances. Raymond Williams, in his um, Keywords book that has inspired this podcast, doesn't talk about care, but he does have quite a bit to say about charity. And interestingly, he notes a sort of ambiguity, or, or rather I should say ambivalence of charity, this idea of charity um, eventually goes cold, uh, and the idea that it's somehow humiliating to avail of charity and also it implies this idea of a deserving poor as well, a sort of reward for approved social conduct, and that we move towards this reassurement uh, from modern governments that when they're giving out welfare benefits, that they have to make clear that this is not a charity, but a right. 
So I wonder, Andreas, is that sense of ambivalence of charity, does it apply in care? Yes, absolutely. Um, in our manifesto, we are spending quite a bit of space talking about the ambivalences of care. And uh, we have also debated uh, the difference, if you like, between care and related concepts such as charity, empathy and solidarity. And if you like, these are themes that have been ongoing in our conversations and they are indeed very challenging ones. I would say, you know, a warning here, I'm not an expert in the genealogy of care, but uh, from bringing in my own personal experience, uh, one of the first things that I felt uncomfortable with was the relationship between care and charity, uh, not least because of uh, my background of, you know, involvement in various solidarity movements. And coming from um, that context, of course, I very early on, I developed, a, if you like, a distaste towards um, charity, the notion of charitable giving and philanthropic giving that tends to be vertical as, as opposed to horizontal, uh, tends to imply an agentic person that has uh, the capacity to give and a subordinated a dependent person that is thankful for being given whatever they are given. And uh, as I'm sure you're both aware, this is a model that has been very, very heavily um, challenged in various um, solidarity and radical left uh, movements. So I was very cautious in my use of care and uh, the extent to which care can be conflated with notions of um, charity and philanthropy. Of course, an interrelated theme here is ambivalence. And as we refer, we refer to it in our care manifesto, ambivalence when it comes to care um, has both an uh, interpersonal dimension in the sense of if you want to follow, let's say, the psychoanalytic uh, tradition, uh, it's very hard to conceive of any model of care that is not fraught with uh, contradictory emotions and impossible dilemmas, you know, from parenting to uh, caring for the elderly. You know, care is not a straightforward act of virtues giving or receiving. You know, most psychoanalytic schools of thought will say care can be uh, quite uh, painful and unpleasant as opposed to pleasant and uh, benevolent emotion. But if we apply that to the level of charity, of course, the other uh, dimension of ambivalence has to do with autonomy and the extent to which basically the care uh, receiver is forced to be in a model of dependency whereby any sense of uh, autonomy or agency is being um, reduced from them. So within the disability activist literature, from what I've heard from my comrades at the Care Collective, uh, there's a lot of talk around uh, strategic autonomy, as they call it. The idea that, um, you know, you are given care, but also you have uh, agency in deciding what kind of care and what the type and what amount of care you require under any given circumstances. Likewise, um, I think uh, Joan Trondo in her, in one of my favorite books about uh, uh, care on caring democracies, she talks, uh, she develops the idea of uh, relational autonomy to address the same question, uh, the extent to which we can have a model of care giving and receiving that is actually vertical as opposed to horizontal, if that makes sense. It's a model that recognizes agency and autonomy as opposed to suppressing it. Back to this idea of the, this distinction that Raymond Williams notes mm. uh, in modern governments, uh, where there's a distinction made between charity and between rights. So where does the moment of entitlement, where is it useful to think of that coming in when it comes to care? And when should it rely on some sort of spirit of, of goodwill and love between people? 
I think, obviously, we should rely on a spirit of goodwill, but we should also rely heavily on uh, and insisting on uh, institutional manifestations of care and solidarity that ensure that we are all given equal access to care resources and we are all given the ability to develop these capacities. So what I mean by that is that, first of all, we have to not look at um, notions of charity and care as, as uh, strictly uh, personal or interpersonal. The way we care for each other is already embedded within society that has institutionalized forms of care and solidarity in some ways and not others. So the welfare state, for example, in the solidarity literature is viewed as an institutional manifestation of our um, innate uh, need uh, to care and provide solidarity for each other. Providing care uh, within a society where, um, if you like, the welfare state is caring state and is a resourceful state that can provide care for everyone uh, is completely different from a model of care whereby these institutional securities are totally um, absent. And what we have to rely instead is on resourceful individuals feeling pity or mercy for, you know, uh, the deserving poor and so on and so forth. So what I would say as a response to that question is we definitely have to insist on looking at questions of uh, both agency and structure when it comes to uh, care and solidarity, and indeed charity as well. You mentioned the corporate form of care or demanding form care from institutions, but I know you also have this concept of care washing. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, okay. So that was um, a concept that came up as we were writing the manifesto. And, you know, it follows, of course, as you know, it follows a long genealogy of uh, similar ideas like uh, greenwashing and uh, pinkwashing and uh, thumbwashing, etc., etc. And what it really highlights is uh, an observation which I feel it's very true, that over the last two years, what we got to some extent was uh, a variety of uh, corporations engaging with the language of care in far more explicit terms. Uh, so about a month ago, I was coming back home from work and I stumbled into a pop-up store, which was um, a Primark store. And uh, it was a pop-up store that uh, aimed primarily at broadcasting uh, the so-called Primark Cares initiative. And uh, that store was full of uh, sustainable and uh, ethically traded products uh, presented in a very uh, boutique style, if you want. And, you know, it really, it really um, struck me because, of course, you know, having a background in consumer ethics, I often uh, quote Primark as an example of high street retailer that has, uh, you know, very questionable supply chains, to say the least, you know, where um, worker exploitation often uh, should never be too far away from the question of how much are we paying, you know, for specific goods that we buy. So I was very struck by that. And that's partly what, if you like, inspired the idea of care washing. But it wasn't just, of course, uh, Primark. At the same time, we had a, a report uh, produced by um, Unilever in collaboration with Oxfam talking about the hidden costs of domestic care work. And uh, likewise, uh, even before that report, uh, I came across randomly a campaign by British Gas, no less, that was talking about again, domestic uh, care and how, you know, we all need to revalue it. Of course, these are ideas that uh, to any feminist scholar will be anything but new, to say the least. But it's very interesting. For me, it was very interesting to observe how corporations are really engaging with um, this discourse in such explicit 
and pronounced, if you like, uh, terms. I know that um, Emma Dowling has a um, book coming up with verse as well called The Cure Fix, and uh, I suspect to some extent that book uh, will be talking about the same issues. But clearly what is interesting for me is this, it's not necessarily the genealogy of corporations trying to gain legitimacy by being good, caring citizens. It, it's more how the language of care in particular came front and center in their corporate communications. And I think that's where care washing becomes highly relevant. One word that has been really common recently on the internet is virtue signaling, which is amplified and intensified by social media, I suppose, because you can just lash out and claim things without necessarily doing that much about them yourselves through the mechanisms of social media. So would you say what we're seeing here is a sort of corporate virtue signaling? Yes, absolutely. I would say this is the corporate version of uh, virtue signaling. Uh, this is not to say, of course, that I completely exclude the possibility that some corporations may have, you know, uh, genuine caring motivations, if we can talk about motivations when it comes to corporations. But in reality, any attempt to um, signal care by uh, major corporations is bound to be uh, fraught with contradictions because um, at a more structural level, uh, care will always have to do with modes of ownership, modes of working conditions, and so on and so forth. And these are questions that uh, cannot be easily addressed at the corporate level. So on the one hand, I have no doubt that there will be some care-washing examples that will be more genuine than others. Uh, I don't think it will be fair to put everything into one dismissive uh, category. I doubt that the archetype of a caring for profit uh, organization uh, can be fully found in reality uh, for, you know, for reasons that um, we on the left are very familiar with. So it is a form of uh, capitalism putting on a human face, which is sort of part of the motor function of capitalism itself. Yeah, I guess in a way, yeah, it is a mode of compassionate uh, capitalism. And perhaps there will be some uh, emancipatory potential there, but uh, equally we have to remain uh, critical and pessimistic uh, about the role of corporation society, especially when that uh, role is not embedded in uh, very, very stringent uh, legal and societal expectations. From a gender perspective, care mm -hmm. is clearly very interesting. On the one hand, I'm thinking of the model of the patriarch who has the sort of duty to care for the family, the sort of extra weight of responsibility. And then on the other hand, we have the social reproduction that we tend to see more as the domain of women. Um, and the caring economy sometimes becomes seen as, as somehow a, a feminist issue or, or the duty of women. So where does gender appear in these discussions of care? Yeah, okay. I think, I guess we need to go back uh, to uh, defining what we mean by care, right? Because I guess that's one thing we haven't done, and I don't think I can answer that question without doing so. So, in our manifesto, when we talk about care, uh, we take very broadened understanding of care, right? We don't only refer to uh, what is most commonly associated with care, which is hands-on care, you know, what uh, John Trondo um, defines as caring for. We also refer to all sorts of, if you like, other forms of care that are more indirect or more uh, implicated in the typical uh, dyadic relationship between a caregiver and a care receiver. So we also talk 
we are also incorporating uh, questions around caring about and caring with. And more broadly, we define care as a social capacity and activity that involves the nurturing of all that is necessary for the welfare and flourishing of uh, both humans and the planet. So our our understanding of care is uh, as broad as possible, and there are very good reasons for doing that, uh, we believe, which I shall explain. But if we are to take such a broader understanding of care, your question could be redefined, right? And uh, I guess that's what I'm going to try to do, because, okay, yes, um, we have a patriarchal model where there's a duty of care, right? And then we have, if you like, a more feminine understanding of care as, you know, uh, in terms of what happens within the household and who is responsible for providing the more intimate and affective uh, modes of care within the household, right? But I would say what we have to look at, if we take such a broader understanding, is uh, we have to look at how, uh, firstly, how care is, in any given society, provisioned uh, amongst four key pillars. Uh, and here, what I'm referring to is the so-called, uh, I think some care economists uh, say, uh, position this as the care diamond. The idea that in order to understand how care works in any given uh, social context, you have to think of families, but you also have to think of communities and states and markets. And you have to look at how, for a variety of uh, structural and cultural reasons, uh, care is provisioned differently yeah, uh, between these four. Uh, but also it's true that in any given uh, society, the kind of care we'll receive uh, will be a combination of these four key modes of provision, right? And if I was to apply that model to your question, I will say that within the patriarchal model, the breadwinner has a duty of care in terms of provisioning uh, certain material um, resources but for various historical reasons, this duty has been dissociated from the duty of intimate and affective care, which has been, uh, again, for various historical reasons, relegated instead to the domestic um, caregivers of, you know, primarily women, right? And uh, what this model, in a sense, then separates is uh, the duty of um, material provisioning, right, from the duty of emotional and affective provisioning of care. And of course, this uh, separation is what has sustained uh, gender inequalities throughout the year. So in a way, this is primarily a gendered model, uh, as we all know. And this is uh, the very model that has led to the devaluing of uh, most forms of care work, uh, because the serious work of provisioning, of course, is done outside the home. And, you know, the, whatever work is happening within the home is not equally valued. The other aspect of patriarchal care, I suppose, is the, the duty of protection, which in some cases takes the form of violence, but also this decision of the patriarch whether to prepare their family for violence, for instance, or to shield them from violence. And I think that has a lot to do with different roles of masculinity as well. So what of violence, of that, that, that aspect of security, protection, where does that fall into this uh, reading of care? I must admit, this is a question I haven't necessarily contemplated, uh, but it's, of course, an interesting one. I was, um, um, yesterday, by coincidence, I was listening to a podcast by, uh, whereby uh, Judith Butler was introducing her, her latest book, uh, you know, The Forces of Nonviolence, and which uh, I haven't read yet. 
but Sipos is a very interesting, she formulates it very nicely, uh, of course, how uh, that every time we try to silence violence, we have uh, to ask the question, to what extent is our response reproduces the very violence it's supposed to be acting against, right? So if, let's say, we were to apply that principle to your own model of the father protecting the family, uh, I guess the broader question was, What's that role there in the first place? Is, is, why is the father made as someone who is, you know, um, violent, protecting, you know, the worthy family members versus those enemies that are outside the household and somehow are imposing all sorts of different violence upon them? You know, so what kind of model is this? How can we begin to deconstruct it? And, of course, uh, what counts as a family? What counts as a, a kinship structure? You know, because, again, what we're going, going back to is the, you know, the nuclear um, heteronormative family model, uh, which, of course, is something we also need to question in terms of care and uh, ways of understanding care beyond uh, the normative patriarchal ways in which care is structured within our societies. Now, I notice care and community tend to become invoked together, but the more worrying aspect of that is, is, is how it often appears in right-wing or racist thinking, the idea that because we're talking about allocation of scarce resources, or at least resources that are imagined to be scarce, there's this idea that first you have to take care of your own, and then this becomes a justification for xenophobia, anti-immigration, or this resentment of immigrants getting access to social welfare, housing, etc. Does it imply who gets to be the proper beneficiant of care? There's almost an economy gets implied of who can we realistically extend our network of care to and who do we necessarily have to exclude from? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very important question to address, especially uh, at the times that we live in, you know, the times of um, authoritarian uh, neoliberalism, if you like, and uh, divisive populism. So what we have at the moment, I guess it's important to recognize that we all care in a way, we all have the capacity to care, and we all end up caring, genuinely or not genuinely, or not so genuinely, for others. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that uh, oftentimes uh, care is restricted to people like us, right? Uh, starting with family members and extending outwards to other uh, individuals that emulate our notion of our familial identity, right? Uh, so we have populist uh, modes of care, we have uh, white care, uh, as someone put it in a recent article, right? And this model of care for us, of course, it's very restrictive, yeah? It is based on similarity. It is based on mirroring ourselves onto, and projecting our, ourselves, if you like, onto others, right? And being incapable of extending our care across difference and across distance. And of course, what we are really fighting for is a far more uh, radical, or, you know, in the manifesto, we label it promiscuous model of care, whereby uh, similarity has no role to play in the way we extend our care uh, to others, right? And of course, it is reassuring to some extent that this model of care uh, at times of crisis like this becomes more possible. And we really need to, in that sense, capitalize on uh, this moment of rupture and perhaps emancipatory potential it may have in terms of extending our care across difference and across distance. 
we should be fighting against populist care and models of care that restrict care to people like us. So, Andreas, in classical economics, the Adam Smith idea of the invisible hand of the market uh, seems to really undermine the idea of institutionalized care. Uh, this idea that the best way to make sure that everybody is properly provisioned and taken care of uh, is for people to have some sort of selfish interest. Um, and just to complicate that a little bit more, I note that Milton Friedman, who argued against corporate social responsibility quite famously, but he nonetheless did see a role for philanthropy, noting that, for instance, in the 19th century, the great age of free markets, notionally, uh, it was also the great age of the philanthropists. So what that's a kind of an interesting idea, too, that care shouldn't be institutionalized generally, but should be institutionalized specifically. And then, of course, it takes us back to this idea of the deserving poor and so on. But if I could just break that down, that question. So first, what of the idea of the invisible hand of the market that depends on us all pursuing a self-interest and then how that gets complicated in classical economic thought? Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, um, I think... Most of us, I would imagine, no longer accept the idea of an invisible hand without any significant, at least without any significant reformulation or adaptation. Uh, but what I would point to is um, what uh, care economists like uh, Nancy Folber uh, talk about, which is what if we were to think about invisible hearts instead of invisible hands, right? And uh, her classic critique of Adam Smith in that sense is that he's completely blinded to the different ways in which uh, care is being provisioned, even within an archetypal uh, free market economy, such as um, you know the Smithian market, right? Even within that model, uh, what we are completely blinded to is the different ways in which people are providing care for each other, and which are ways that operate entirely outside the market or in parallel to the uh, main free market model. And although you know various. Uh, enthusiastic uh, takers of Adam Smith would easily dismiss them. What we know and what has become very apparent, especially with crises like the corona crisis, is that these modes of provisioning are equal, if not more important, than uh, the modes of market provisioning. So we really need, when we talk about an economy, uh, we really need to uh, put care front and center and realize that market systems, for a variety of different reasons, cannot really uh, address uh, care in an effective enough way. Of course, the Marxist reformulation would be, you know, to turn into uh, social reproduction as opposed to production and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think it's fair to say it's a very restricted model in that sense. Could we say maybe a little bit playfully that anybody who champions free markets, especially historically, they should better understand that we need a lot of neurosis just to have a functioning society. Capitalism needs its neurotic component so that people, strangers, can uh, try to relate to each other in the first place. Without a primary uh, neurosis, uh, I don't think cities could hang together. If everybody already knew how to manipulate and exploit everybody, then it would be indeed some dystopian outcome. Exactly, but also, um, like many alternative economies, so-called alternative, uh, will say, like uh, Kate Raworth, for example, this notion, this archetype of the free market never actually existed. And of course, the typical Karl Polanyi argument will be that markets have always been embedded in society. To, to imagine markets that are outside of it, you know, and somehow fully disembedded is a fallacy. 
the very notion of free market never really existed. And we know also uh, at the same time that those uh, markets that are presented to us are free are actually markets that require huge amounts of governmental intervention in order to be uh, so-called free. So, yeah, it's a total um, fallacy. If I can make a real quick diversion to uh, culturally oriented consumer research, mm -hmm. and now that you mentioned communities, so it would seem to me that very often when cultural consumer researchers talk about communities, they seem to naturalize the idea that communities are caring internally. So in communities, people care about each other. And uh, so the idea of the sort of ethical community becomes readily naturalized. So from a critical perspective to that kind of uh, approach, it would seem to me that especially when communities are very closely linked to the idea of consumption, what happens is almost the opposite, which is almost like extreme individuality and competition within the community uh, from the perspective of what kind of uh, consumption objects one can uh, own or you know, uh, establish a sort of uh, knowledge of, or then between communities, for example, fighting about different consumption practices. What's your take on this idea, this sort of uh, caring or ethicality comes relatively easily combined with the very functioning of the market itself? Yeah, I totally agree. I would say what we are offered is uh, primarily a model of market-mediated uh, community care that is, in many different ways, uh, very restrictive. I like the work of uh, Steve Miles here, and um, you know, who, who talks about spaces uh, for consumption, and he has that notion of uh, complicit communality. And uh, his notion of complicit communality refers to the idea that what we have ended up doing to a large extent is uh, reviving bygone community ethos and notions of care in highly commoditized, uber-spectacularized uh, consumption scapes from shopping malls to Starbucks. And uh, in doing so, we, to some extent, we have lost our capacity to more genuinely connect with each other. Uh, so the forces of commoditization and marketization, if you like, have a corrosive effect on our sociality. And I think that is to some extent true. Um, we do see that. And instinctively, I think most of us can see this, uh, up until recently, could see this happening in our communities. You know, all of a sudden, any kind of outing has to be yet another opportunity for symbolic differentiation from others that are not like us and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I would agree that uh, the market-mediated model of community care is uh, very restrictive. Now, as against that pejorative idea of consumer culture as atomizing and putting people into this type of competition with each other, we also have to read the consumer culture from people like material anthropologist Daniel Miller that emphasizes that when people consume, that often what they're doing is materializing the care that they have for each other. So that famous line he has that when people uh, shop, they are making love in the supermarkets. And what he means by that is that, that love is something that has to be made and produced. And that's what people are doing at supermarkets. They're buying the food that will then be taken home and cooked for a family. The family will have to gather around a table. And it's at that moment that cares happens, but it's something that's produced and made and consumption is, is the provisioning of all of that to, to make that materialization possible. So is there a problem of, of having this very pejorative 
understanding of consumer culture? Um, or should we still cling to that idea that consumerism is a type of antipathy to, um, to care itself? It's a very good question. I wouldn't necessarily disagree that much, if not most, uh, consumption activity is done with others in mind, right? And in that sense, you know, much of our caring activity is uh, mediated by consumption. Uh, I think that's almost inevitable. You know, from the food that we cook to the gifts that we give to um, paying for our children's education. You know, of course, care is everywhere in that sense. And uh, from an anthropological point of view, you can see why this uh, observation is um, embraced enthusiastically. But what is absent in this uh, anthropological view is the way in which, going back to what we were saying earlier, uh, care is provisioned. And the way that you know certain modes of care provisioning are at the expense of others, right? Okay, we we will always, you know, we all have the capacity to care and we are all, we all end up caring for others. But let's say if we were to apply this to a familial level, right? Okay, this model is not contradictory with uh, the model of the hegemonic white middle-class family that only cares for its family members, uh, maybe also has an au pair, and uh, maybe also buys all sorts of products and services uh, that are being uh, produced or made under extremely exploitative, extremely uncaring conditions, and they don't really care to think about it at all. So, okay, yes, you can have that very family being caring to each other, but this family is already within, is already haunted by um, systemic carelessness. Right? So you can have a caring family within a systemically careless uh, society. And that's the problem with these anthropological accounts, to my mind. You have to actually go behind, beyond the obvious level to, to, to look at what is absent, what is silenced, what is, how could care be provisioned differently. You know, no one will blame um, anyone for caring for each other by uh, going to the marketplace and buying some things for them. But, you know, how can we envision a more radically caring society is the driving question. I'm wondering yeah. why so many caring institutions have become bastions of conservative thought. So, for example, why is it that the church has got this long history of homophobia, for example? Is there something inherently conservative about caring institutions that end up just reproducing norms that uh, are, are conservative? I would actually go back to, not to be stubborn about it, but I will go back to the question of how care is provisioned uh, in any given society and who are the main actors. And of course, I forgot to include uh, religion and uh, religious institutions, but of course they are a major pillar. They have been a major pillar of care provision in most uh, societies as we know them. And um, again then, the question is, uh, what kind of care are they providing and under what circumstances? And it may be uh, more or less conservative in the same way that the kind of care that the state is providing could be more or less radical. The kind of care that families are providing can be more or less radical and progressive and so on and so forth. So I wouldn't necessarily uh, say there's something particularly exotic about uh, the church in that sense. Let's not forget that the same uh, uh, point has been raised in relation to solidarity. Uh, of course, 
religious solidarity has been a key idea, at least within the European tradition, right? And uh, the model of religious solidarity for uh, those in the left has been very conservative and restrictive as well. So, you know, we can draw some parallels here. But ultimately, the question is, okay, uh, if the church is a major provider of care in any given context, what kind of care are they providing? For whom? Uh, Is this a model of care that we want to emulate or not? Through social distancing, or should I rather say physical distancing at this point, uh, we are seeing all new types of relationships between people that you could probably call caring relationships pop up within city life all over the place. You've noticed many of those, I'm sure. What have been some of the more interesting ones for you? Uh, I think, for me, one of the main ruptures that I hope is here to stay is the distinction between our understandings of the economy and our understandings of society. You know, in in a way, the realization that we should uh, revalue care in all its different manifestations. We are all of a sudden thankful to all our care workers, those that are very visible to us, but also those that are not as visible. For example, those that are sanitizing our um, underground trains and so on and so forth. And uh, this for me could be a moment for a progressive uh, rethinking of uh, what is the role of care in society and uh, how can we reorganize uh, our society and our economy in ways where care is really put uh, center stage, right? Uh, I mean, I I do enjoy seeing all these uh, different uh, debates on Facebook and elsewhere about why is it that our nurses uh, paid so uh, little when our bankers and various other um, managerial um, classes are paid so much. And these questions are all of a sudden foregrounded and uh, hopefully, that could be one positive out of this crisis. That uh, you know, I think we, for once, realize that our understandings, our conventional understandings of the economy and uh, the role of our economy in society, has to be reconsidered. So, if I can continue for just a little bit about uh, the practices of city life, uh, Levinasian perspective mm-hmm. of indefinite responsibility towards the other if one would want to have an ethical relationship in the first place, comes about as city life as a bastion of estrangement. So we become strangers, cities are anonymous, we don't know each other. So in a Levinasian perspective, a key account is that we are all half guilty by negligence. So because we adopt the rules and the norms of how you're supposed to act and handle yourself in a city, walking past beggars, you know, making your heart colder in those moments because they're just too repetitious to really, really do anything about. We become half guilty on principle. So do you think these kind of potentially new relationships that are popping about could offer potentially some sort of revelation, uh, very specifically in just the very practices we, we encounter each other in city spaces and city life? Yeah, uh, I think that's a great question and uh, totally agree. I, I would also bring in to this conversation um, uh, Hannah Arendt, actually, and uh, you know her understanding of evil and the banality of evil. And one could draw some parallels here when it comes to city life and uh, you know what we got used to just before the corona crisis in the sense of how carelessness was totally banalized. We were really like, uh, I live in East London in a so-called uh, gentrified area. 
and sightings of homelessness are everywhere next to all sorts of conspicuous acts of affluent consumption and so on and so forth. And somehow, and of course I come from a country where the refugee crisis has been ongoing, and it's striking how how used we um, got to this and how in Arendtian terms we lost the capacity to think. Uh, we lost the capacity to care uh, more progressively and more creatively about our uh, surrounding uh, lives, you know, in this sense, are, you know, our urban communities. And to that, um, uh, in that sense, I guess I would agree that hopefully the coronavirus crisis will revive our capacity to think and care differently, you know, because, you know, we have already seen this happening uh, in terms of how, for example, the homeless are now being put to accommodation and um, in the case of the refugee crisis, how uh, there has been some movement, albeit of course very slow and probably too slow, uh, dramatically, to you know resolter them and so on and so forth. So hopefully this uh, seemingly temporary uh, disruption to our banalized carelessness is here to stay, and will prove not to be temporary but a longer-lasting influence in the way we think about our communities and um, all sorts of different others. In the light of all of this, are you worried that your forthcoming book will need to be completely revised in order to take account of the coronavirus? Yes, <laughs> I think so. Um, I mean, it is, well, I don't think I will say more seriously, this is something we have discussed, of course, and I feel like our progressive vision of care um, across scales, so we started with the level of kinship moving on to communities, to states, to markets, to uh, the world, and all the way back to uh, the level of kinship. This model uh, is not necessarily going to be uh, radically challenged because in a way I would like to think it was already uh, progressive enough and taking into account all sorts of different crises of care that were haunting us way before the corona crisis. But of course, the corona crisis uh, is asking us to revisit both the nature and extent of the care crisis, so-called multifaceted uh, care crisis, and ways in which we can imagine uh, more caring, more radically caring uh, futures. Uh, so one key difference, uh, for example, is that we logics of care values have been uh, prioritized versus, if you like, the capitalist notion of value or exchange value. That may have all sorts of um, different consequences that uh, we wouldn't have been able to foresee a few months ago, a few weeks ago. So yes, uh, to some extent, um, I think this crisis means quite a bit of rewriting for us. Uh, but when it comes to the main anchors of our progressive vision of a caring uh, world, I would like to think that many of the premises remain the same and will remain the same, inevitably. Thank you very much. It was, it's been really interesting to learn about caring. Thank you. Yes, thank, you. thank you, Andreas.